Good morning, church. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Let me tell you what we're going to do this morning. Uh, We have a lot to get through and accomplish this morning, so we are going to start with comparing and contrasting uh, the leadership. We're going to be talking about leadership this morning, and we're going to be comparing and contrasting the leadership structure of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Then we're going to look at the leadership failure of the Apostle Peter and the leadership failure of Judas Iscariot. And then we're going to look at where we are and where we need to be as well. So I promise it shouldn't take more than four hours. All right? We'll, uh, we'll get right to it. All right? Let's jump in. Acts chapter 1. Let's read starting with verse 12. It starts like this. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and James, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and son Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up from among the brothers. The company of persons was in about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who, has, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out." And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Acheldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. All right, let's start back in uh, verse um, 14, if you will. Let's take a look at this a little bit more closely. Um, Comparing the leadership structure of Old Testament Israel to New Testament Israel, okay, we're going to see something very different. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Okay, a couple of things I want you to see at the very beginning of this. Number one is all of these, this is the first time that we're seeing the church gathered together after the ascension of Christ. So remember, we've got the birth, right? We've got the death. We've got the resurrection, okay? And then we have the ascension, where he goes back to be with the Father, okay? So the last thing that we see is the disciples at Mount Olivet, okay, looking up into the sky as Jesus ascends back to the right hand of the Father. Now, at that point, they are redirected and told, I want you to leave here, And I want you to go back to Jerusalem and wait. In a matter of days, in just a few days, I'm going to come back, but I'm going to bring power. Okay, Power from from God, from on high, is going to come upon you. Now, they had no idea what that meant. Now, you just need to know that. Here they are gathered together in this upper room that uses the phrase upper room. We believe that this is the same um, um, upper room that they celebrated Passover in right before the crucifixion of Jesus. So here they are gathered together in this upper room, gathered together wondering what is going to happen next. Obviously, Jesus said, we're going to be empowered. How are we going to be empowered? Well, this series is called Empowered. And we've been talking about what is it that empowers the New Testament church and what is it that empowers the church today? 
And we've said that it's the Holy Spirit that empowers the church. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer and gives us authority, power, and strength to deal with every situation in life that comes along in a way that would both honor God and glorify Him. Okay, now what we see here though, just to add to that, is we see the church gathered together and all these were of one accord, meaning they had one heart, one mind, one vision. They were praying for the same thing. What were they praying for? It's not said. But what we know is that they're praying with urgency because God has said, I'm about to do something great. Get ready for it. So here they are praying, God, we want to be ready for this. We want to be anticipating what you're going to do. We want to be um, obedient to whatever you're going to unfold to us. And so the church together praying towards one goal, and that is that they will be ready for whatever it is that God is going to do for them. Now, it's also interesting that as they, as they gathered together here, uh, they were with women and they were with Mary. This is very unusual in the day. Remember several months ago when we studied the temple? We looked at the temple, and I told you that the temple of God, the, the temple in Jerusalem, uh, was, was segregated. It was segregated by Gentiles on the outside, the outer court. Then the inner court was women, Jewish women, and then Jewish men, and then priests, and then the high priest. Okay? So as you approach God, more, it got more narrow and narrow and narrow and narrow. And so what Jesus is doing here, what the church is doing, is he's expanded the people that he's about to reach out to to include more than just the Jewish people. It's going to include the whole world. So let's take this from you know, 2,000 feet and pull it up to 10,000 feet and talk about the Old Testament. A lot of you guys, when you look at the Old Testament, you look at the New Testament, you're tempted to think things like, well, there's just, it's a completely different storyline. It seems like there's almost a completely different God in the Old Testament than there is in the New Testament, right? It seems like the God of the Old Testament is the God of wrath and anger. This is, this is the God who seems to bring judgment on anyone who disagrees with him in any way. And then you get to the New Testament and you see like you have Jesus, and he seems to be a little bit more full of grace and peace. And So how do these two things fit together? Well, the first thing that you need to know is that these are not two different gods and these are not two different systems. They're one system unfolding through time. They're one system folding, unfolding through time. So the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. This God, this one God that we serve, is unfolding revelation as time goes on. So if you look at time as a timeline, God over here at the beginning, and then here at the end of creation, God is unfolding, making it bigger and bigger and bigger, his revelation of who he is. And so at the end, at the very beginning, what we have is we have God as obedient and children as obedient. At the end, what we have is children full of faith, trusting in a loving father. And so what happens is, and that's the way we parent, isn't it? I mean, when they're really young, you have to say, no, don't, right? Don't run into the street where those cars are. Don't grab that burner. Don't steal that cookie. We have to just orchestrate it that way. Eventually, as they grow up and as they mature, hopefully we don't have to say those things to them anymore, right? Hopefully they become more friends. There's a closeness and intimacy. And that's what's happening as the Bible unfolds. In the Old Testament, leadership structure of the Old Testament was like this. It was designed by God in like a triad, which of course represents, if you will, the Trinity. All right? So we have prophet, priest, and king of the Old Testament. These are the people who ran Israel. Now, if you look at the New Testament, if you, see that, if you notice that God doesn't seem to focus so much on, the, on Israel, you're right. What God does in the New Testament is he focuses on the people of God. In the Old Testament, the people of God, the church, if you will, was Israel itself. So God comes to Israel and he says, 
I'm going to be your God. If you will be my people, I will be with you if you will be with me. He gives them a covenant. He says, I'm going to love you forever. And even sometimes when you do not love me, I'm still going to love you. I'm going to be with you. It's a promise from God to his people. And he pulls these people out and he says, you're going to be my people. And so Israel, the Bible traces Israel as it goes throughout history and like a, like a, like a spotlight on Israel as Israel travels through history. That's the redemptive history that we find in the Bible. Okay? So Israel is led by prophets, priests, and kings. Okay? The prophet's job was to be the mouthpiece of God. So he took the words of God that God would speak to him and he would tell them to the king who was leading the nation or the people that needed to hear the word. Now this is really important for you to understand this. God spoke differently to the prophets in the Old Testament than he does to you and me today. Like when you and I hear God today, we go, huh, maybe that was God speaking to me. I feel like it's God speaking to me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the Bible and I'm going to look is what I feel like God is saying consistent with what the Bible teaches. If so, I'm on pretty solid ground that God's speaking to me. But if God, and we've used this illustration before, but if if God comes to you and says, hey man, uh, I think you should divorce your wife because she's a jerk. You know, um, Every once in a while, aren't we all jerks, right? Um, some of us more than others, okay, all right? But, but nevertheless, right, we, we have those moments. And if God comes to you and says that, you need to know it's not God. Because the Bible says God hates divorce and he's not going to do that. So what we do is we hear God and then we come back to the word and we try to figure out, is this really God, that's, this little voice inside my head, or is it just me? Right? Is it just my voice or is it God's voice? But in the Old Testament, when God would speak to prophets, he audibly spoke to them. Like the burning bush with Moses, Moses and he would speak aloud. So there wasn't any ifs, ands, or buts about what he said. In fact, Israel knew this to be the case, and so for a prophet, if he were to speak something, for example, if a prophet of Israel told the king of Israel, hey, you need to go and do battle against this nation, God is with you, he's going to deliver the nation into your hands. And if the battle did not go well, what would happen to the prophet? Immediately he was put to death. So this was like not a job you really wanted, you know? There weren't a lot of people signing up, hey, I'd like to be a prophet, you know? It was one of those things where they, people were just kind of reserved, and then God chose them, spoke to them audibly, and of course what God says, God will declare and do. Then, alongside the prophets were the priests. The priests were people who took the sins of Israel and brought them before God. Prophet bringing the voice in the mouth of down uh, from the Father, and then the priest lifting up the sins to the Father, through the sacrifices, through the festivals, and through the feasts. And constantly the priest's job was to point people back to God and say, we have sinned against God, we have sinned against God, and as a result of that sin, God needs to forgive us. That was the job of the priest. And of course, the job of the king was very simple. It was to govern. It was to make sure Israel was safe militarily. It was to make sure it was prosperous. And these were the administrators of the society. Now, of course, we don't have prophet, priest, and king today in the same sense. So what God does is there's a transition that takes place right here in the text, right here, okay? And the transition is moving from prophet, priest, king, Old Testament, to the apostles. There are 12 apostles, and we're about to look at the fact that Judas dies and has to be replaced as the leadership structure of Israel progresses forward. So we move from prophet, priest, king to um, the 12 apostles. 12, why? Because of the 12 tribes of Israel. A couple other reasons that are beyond our purview right now. But 12 tribes of Israel represented by 12 leaders who will then go, watch this, these 12 apostles will have the office of apostle for one generation until they die. And then when they die, no other person can go, I'm an apostle. 
because it died with them. Because in a minute, you're going to see the rules for being an apostle. The rule is this, that you're with Jesus from the time of John's baptism till the time of Jesus' resurrection. So it was a guy hanging out with Jesus that was chosen, that was with them from the time of John's baptism till the time of Jesus' ascension. Okay, so because there are no other people in the world like that, we don't have the office of apostle anymore. So from that one generation, those 12 men go out and they scatter all over the world. Okay, we're going to look at one guy, Matthias. Matthias is the replacement of Judas. Judas' replacement goes to Ethiopia. He becomes the Ethiopian patron saint. Africa owes much of its Christianity to this guy, Matthias. So he goes there, he lives there for the rest of his life, he's martyred there. Okay. These 12 disciples, they go to different churches. Church is simply a word, ecclesia. It means the gathering of the people. And that's what a church is. If you notice, we don't even own our own building. Why? Because the church is not a building. You, know, you don't go to First Presbyterian Church or First Methodist Church or whatever it is that you, that you have attended in the past the church is the gathering of people wherever the gathering of people are. Okay? So it is the gathering of people together for the sake of living on mission for Christ. So these 12 disciples, what they do is they go to each one of the churches that they've established and they create elders. Everyone say elders. Elders are basically the governing body of each individual church and that's the way it's going to be until Jesus returns. Okay? I'm an elder. We have other elders in the church. Elders lead the church. Now watch this, this is really cool. We lead the church in three primary ways. Prophet, priest, and king. Prophetically, we have to speak certain times and certain things into your lives that we don't even want to speak. We have to teach certain things that sometimes we wrestle around with with the Bible, but we teach them because we're trying to be biblically faithful to the word. And we say to you, here's where the standard is, here's where your life is, here's where the line is, right? And we need to say those things. A prophet speaks the truth, all right? Sometimes we have to be priestly. We have to come to your home and sit with you as you're going through a difficult time. We have to sit next to somebody in the hospital who's dying. We, we have to sit next, we don't have to, but these, this is the job of, of the elder. We get to pray with people at their weddings, at their funerals, at crucial life moments. We have the amazing opportunity of being there in ways that nobody else really does. So we are prophet, we are priest, and we're also kingly. We have to deal with business aspects of the church as well. My least favorite part of it, but it's still part of it, right? You have to deal with rents and you have to deal with all that kind of stuff. We have to manage the church right. So we see there's come full circle. From the Old Testament prophet, priest, king, to the 12 apostles who lived for one generation, then handing it off to the elders who now run all the churches. There are elders at every church, okay? Call them pastor sometimes. We call them priest sometimes, but the same word, presbyteros, is the word that's used to describe all of them. Pastor, priest, and elder. Same word that used for all of those. Now, I want you to see a couple things here. All these were in one accord. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Verse 15 becomes a little bit controversial, but you may miss it. Here it is. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120. Let me deal with first 120 and then Peter. 120, why? Why that number? It was about 120. It didn't say it was 120. It said it was about 120. It's an estimate. It's a guesstimate. All right? And the reason for that was in order to have a Sanhedrin, which was a Jewish ruling council, in order to have one of those, you need to have one leader for every 10 people. And because there were 12 disciples, we needed 120 people as followers. So 120 people gathered together in this upper room, waiting for instructions from God to receive power to go out and do the mission of God. 
But in those days, Peter stood up from among them. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I thought, that's a problem. I mean, how is Peter the one who gets to stand up? Because the last thing that we see of Peter in the Gospels is Peter has rejected Christ. He's rejected even knowing him. Okay, But this Peter, who in the Old Testament, you would look at it and you go, man, Peter is... Peter absolutely should be the leader of the church. Why? Because he's the first one to do everything. He's impetuous. He's impulsive. He probably had ADD. Nevertheless, he was one of those guys who was fully engaged at all times. I mean, that's Peter. Remember the situation, right? I mean, Peter's the first one when he sees, as all the guys on the boat thought so, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, Peter sees a ghost walking across the water, recognizes the ghost as Jesus, and then jumps out of the boat and starts walking across the water. Only other human being ever to do that besides Jesus, right? So here you have Peter. He is willing to do the extraordinary while all the other guys in the boat just kind of cower back. There was something bold about Peter. There was something brash about Peter. Peter wanted so desperately to be a part of what Jesus was doing. Peter was also the one who said to Jesus, who rebuked Jesus, you will not wash my feet because I'm not worthy of you washing my feet. Jesus returns to him and says, you cannot rebuke me. I'm called to wash your feet. Sit back and shut up. And then you see Peter with the garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane when the Roman legions show up to take Jesus to both punish him, to crucify him, and then to kill him. Peter's the first one when the Roman guard walks up to pull out his sword that is sheathed and strike a Roman centurion, which, by the way, was an offense punishable by death. Peter didn't care why, because he wanted what Jesus wanted. He wanted to be all about the work of Jesus, which makes it so difficult to understand that in the moment of the crucifixion, when when Christ lays bare on the cross and all of the sins of our, our sins and the sins of humanity are poured out upon him, Peter is nowhere to be found. In fact, the only person that's there at that moment is who? John and Mary, his mom. Because where else is a mom gonna be? But right there. And John is as the Bible describes in the book of John, which I think it's funny because John is the writer of the book of John, and John says about himself, he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved the most. I'm like, that's awesome. So, so, so John, the disciple that Jesus loved the most, is by his side. And there is this amazing tender moment between Jesus in agony and suffering on the cross and John and Mary. Jesus looks down and he sees Mary who is just wrecked at this moment and he sees John and he says John this is now your mother Mary this is now your son and he puts Mary in the employ of John for the rest of her life and this is why the first scene that we see John is gathered together in the upper room and Mary the mother of Jesus is there why where else could she be but with her new son but Peter Peter was nowhere to be found. Somebody asks him in the marketplace, hey, weren't you with those disciples? Not with me. And Jesus foretold the moment. He said, Peter, you will forsake me. And Peter says, no, 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 no. I would never do that. I love you more than these other guys. I'm all in. Peter, uh, uh, aren't you one of the guys who was with Jesus? No, that's not me. You're thinking of someone else. Guy just looked like me. And then 
a slave girl sees Peter and she says to him, you are one of the disciples, one of Jesus' disciples. And he curses at her and he says, no, I'm not. I don't even know the man. I don't even know him. And in that moment, the rooster crows. And Peter is aware of his betrayal. Like Judas, Peter betrays Jesus. He betrays everything that he knew to be true about Jesus and walks away. So how is it that the first scene we get to see post-ascension, Peter's leading the church? How does he get there? Well, there's a couple of things that happen in between um, that are written in other places in the scripture, but one is that during the 40 days after the resurrection, 40 days elapse when Jesus walks around and reveals himself to various people. One of those people was who? Peter. They have a conversation together. And then the next scene you see is the disciples who were not there as well as Peter have gone back to their fishing trade. And so they're fishing. Jesus is on the shore and he says, come on in. And they catch a bunch of fish and come on in. They eat fish on the shore together. Jesus is resurrected. They're amazed. And Jesus turns to, John, to, to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? And, and No, I'm sorry. He says, Peter, do you love me more than the rest of these? And he says, you know I do, Lord. You know I do. And he says, well, then feed my sheep. Peter goes, awesome. And moments later, Peter, do you love me? He goes, yeah, I do. I just said I did. I, I, love, I love you. Then feed my sheep. And then moments later, he says, he says Peter, do you love me? And the Bible says that Peter's heart is cast downward. Why? Because he recognizes that Jesus knows that he doesn't. And Jesus turns to him and he says, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. There is, there is a moment of restoration right here. There, there's a moment where Jesus says, I know what you did. I know that you denied it. I told you that you would deny me. I know who you are. I know your sin. I know your betrayal. But I'm telling you, stop wallowing in your pain. Stop wallowing in your past. Recognize that I'm calling you forward to feed my sheep. And Peter, because in 1 Peter, the Bible says, the Bible says, cast all your anxieties upon me. All right? Now watch this. It also says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, and in due time, he will lift you up. So Peter, there may be a couple of days where you're going to walk around with utter decimation in your heart. You're going to feel completely like you betrayed someone else. And I don't know about you, but for me, those are the harder things. Not when someone betrays you, but when you have betrayed yourself. I mean, isn't that more difficult when you've let yourself down, when you've looked at yourself and you go, I can't believe that that's what you just did. I can't believe that's what you're engaged in. I can't believe that's where you are. And Peter's living in that for a moment, but he comes to Christ, he's with Jesus, and Jesus restores him. And I would ask you this morning, how do you deal with personal failure with God? Because how you deal with personal failure with God will determine whether you become a long-term disciple or a short-term disciple. 
Because short-term disciples always pull away from God when things get hard. Long-term disciples press into Jesus, recognizing that the gospel says of them that all they have in Christ has been secured once and for all. That it's not petty, that it doesn't come and it doesn't go. It's not on the whim of somebody's personality. That you don't have to please the world around you, you just have to please the one. And if that is where you are, you'll be a long-term disciple. But if you are worried and concerned and fearful about what other people think about you all the time, you're going to be a short-term disciple. You will, because you'll follow the train of the world around you, trying to fill in the gaps and make yourself feel better. Let me give you an example. Uh, there are times in the church over the probably 18 years that I've been a pastor, I have seen overwhelming numbers of people just kind of withdraw into their own shell when they go through a season of difficulty with their family. I'll come to somebody's house and I'll say, hey, I haven't seen you in church in a long time, which I'll do to you, okay? So watch out. So I'll come to somebody's house and I'll say, hey, I haven't seen you in church in a while and I, just wanna, I heard some things were going, you're going through some difficult times. And they'll say, yeah, we just haven't been there because we just don't want a bunch of people knowing what's going on. And my heart is always like this. If you do not, if we do not, struggle in the gospel together through our pain in such a way, watch this, in such a way that we come out the other side being stronger, better disciples, how is anyone else in the world ever going to know what it's like to be a strong, overcoming disciple? Because if all we show them is, hey, my life's awesome, Jesus is cool, then all they're going to get is, Jesus is cool as long as everything's awesome. And I want you to understand that's not the way that it is. Peter presses through. Think about this. He stands up before the disciples and he stood up among the brothers and he began to teach. But imagine what the other brothers must have thought about him as well. Peter wasn't concerned about what the other disciples thought. If he was, he would have moved to another town. He would have moved away. He would have said, you know what? I'm, that's part of my life that's done with. I don't want to face those guys anymore. No, Peter had to go back as a betrayer and say to the other disciples, I betrayed our Savior. But he's restored me back to a place of responsibility and leadership. Now, I want to compare this to Judas. Judas Iscariot, Iscariot is one of the most um, noteworthy people in the Bible because of his tragic end. I want you to pick it up in verse uh, 17. For he was numbered among us, and he was allotted his share in the ministry. So even as Luke writes the book of Acts here, it says that he was numbered among us. There is a distancing of language that Luke uses here. It doesn't say he was one of our brothers because that's the term that's always used as a disciple describes another disciple. He was one of the brothers. All right. So here what you see is Luke, the writer of this, is, is distancing himself from Judas. And he's saying he was only numbered among us. He wasn't really one of us. He was just numbered among us. And he was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man, this Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and failing, I'm sorry, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of his bowels gushed out. I mean, this is a terrible end. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So everybody found out about this, everybody knew about it, so that the field was called in their own language, Acheldama, which means field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms. So David many, many, many centuries before this takes place, writes about Judas Iscariot, and he says these words, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. So not only did Judas, Judas lose his life, we're going to talk about that in a minute, not only did Judas lose his life, but he lost his life, he, he lost his legacy. No one will stand in his camp ever again. No family, no future, 
no legacy. He's utterly cut off from the life. So Judas. Judas makes this plot with the, with the Pharisees, right? We know the story a little bit because this is, precedes Jesus' death. The Pharisees hate Jesus because he's a teacher who teaches with authority and everyone around them is like, you know, I just, you know I, we don't, we're jealous, we're angry, so let's do something to basically tear him down. We, want, we need to kill this guy. So they gather the weakest link of the disciples, which is G, uh, Judas, because Judas had uh, the purse, the money. He was susceptible to uh, the weaknesses of, of money. So they go to him and they say, hey, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. If you'll betray, you'll tell us where Jesus is at this specific time. Judas says, deal. Takes the money. They're at the mount um, uh, together. They're in Gethsemane. And Jesus comes up and he looks at Jesus. The, the story goes like this. Jesus looks at him. He says, do what you're going to do quickly. And so Judas comes up and he kisses him on the cheek. I can't imagine how much that broke Jesus' heart. I mean, this is a man who walked with him every single day. Every single day of his ministry. This is a man who walked with him, whom Jesus loved, who right before he betrayed him, Jesus gave Judas the position of honor next to him, knowing the whole time that Judas would one day betray him. And so he looks at him and he kisses him and he says, do what you've come to do. He kisses him. And then a Roman guard grabs Jesus. Judas then has some time to think about it because they take him and they're, they're going to do what they're going to do with Jesus. And Judas is spending some time by himself and he realizes what he's done is he's betrayed innocent blood. And so he's feeling extremely guilty. He's overwhelmed with sorrow. So he takes the 30 pieces of silver and he goes back to the Pharisees and he says, I don't, I don't want this anymore. This is, this is blood money. And the, 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 the Pharisees look at him and they say, we're not taking it back, and they throw it at him. Or at least that's how it happened in the temptation of Christ, or Passion of Christ. They take the money and they throw it at him, right? And so it's this really dramatic moment. And he leaves, and he's utterly decimated by it. Because here's what's happening with Judas. It seems like, it seems like Peter having regret, Judas is having regret, and it seems like he's trying to deal with it, but he is. He's trying to deal with it in a way to atone for his own sins. See, in Judas's mind, he's thinking, if I can just give the silver back, we'll be fair. Everything will be equal, we'll be okay. I will be back on good ground. If I can maybe figure out how to get Jesus out of this, everything will work. No, 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 he didn't come to God, humble himself before God and say, I've sinned against you. He came to himself and said, I'm going to figure this out myself. Let me say to you, when you're in the midst of sorrow, when you're in the midst of difficulty, whether you're going to be a long-term disciple or a short-term disciple, all hinges on who you run to in your pain. If you manage your sin and try to figure out how to manage those sins, all right, if you manage your own sin, try to figure out how to atone for your own sins, you're going to fall on your face. If, on the other hand, you humble yourself before God in due time, maybe not right away, God will exalt you. Look at this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. It'll be on the screen. It says this, For godly sorrow, godly grief, produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces what? It produces death. It produces death. So with Peter, we see the first side. Godly grief producing repentance that leads to salvation. Watch this, without regret. This is why the Apostle Paul, much later, looks at his life. He says, I press onward, forward. I press onward without looking back for the prize of the high calling that I have in Christ. I'm not going to look back over my life and see my failings. Do we have failings? Yes. 
We have lots of failings. We could spend our life looking back at those going, I need to figure out how to fix each one of these, or we could press on. And I would encourage you not to become such a navel gazer looking at your pain that you become enveloped by that pain. Long-term discipleship requires you to look forward and not backward. It requires you to press on and not look back. You have fallen, I have fallen, we have failed, yes. It's a given, we're sinners. It's expected. However, you don't have to wallow in it, you don't have to stay there, you can move forward in it and through it. He goes on to say this, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation, and that kind of godly sorrow never leaves regret. So if you're a person who walks around with regret in your heart all the time about the choices you made in the past, or about some choices that were made for you. Don't walk around with grief. Don't walk around with regret. It's an unnecessary purse you carry if you're a woman. That was a bad analogy. It's an unnecessary burden that you carry with you. Okay? But watch the other side of this. Worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief produces death. And this is what we see happen with Judas. Judas falls down. He tries to fix it. He's managing his sin. He's trying to figure out how to work this whole thing out, atone for his own sin. And then what ends up happening? He commits suicide. He takes his own life. And in this, somebody just get a little graphic here for a moment because it talks about him being hung. It's not how they did it in the Old Testament. Hanging in the Old Testament was a spear placed into the ground and you hang on the spear. That's why his bowels spilled out into the, into the, into the land. Now, the reason why that was important because it took note of this, may his camp be desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it. And then David writes in the Psalms, verse, verse uh, 20, let another take his office. So not only is the leadership of Judas cut off, the life of Judas cut off, because his sorrow was not godly, it was worldly, but now the utter remembrance of him will be no more. He is no longer one of the twelve. He is gone, desolate. Verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must be with us and be a, uh, and be a witness to his resurrection. Verse 23. And they put forward two guys. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. So Joseph Justice. I would thought that's a pretty cool name. I can see why they chose him. And another guy named Matthias. So Joseph, Justice, and Matthias, they're chosen. Here's how they decide it. They gather disciples together, they put these two together, and they say, all right, these are two men who have walked with us from the time of John's baptism to the time of the ascension, so, and they have good character, these are good men, each one of them would make great disciples. So we're going to let God choose. So they take out dice, true story, read it right there. They take dice out and they roll them. And whichever one uh, was designated, whichever one, Matthias comes up the winner right? So this, the, story, the, 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 you know, the whole purpose of this is that you can go to Vegas and God will determine what, what you do, all right? But remember, the house always wins, okay? So you're going to lose. Actually, in the, believe it or not, in the Proverbs, the Bible says God determines every throw of the dice, right? So if that's your deal, then that'll be your scripture, that'll be your life scripture, okay? All right, so what he does, and it seems kind of strange, but they throw the dice and Matthias is chosen. Now, Matthias actually goes on to become the apostle to um, um, the Ethiopian church, to, to, to the African church, and goes on to be um, an amazing man of God. Verse 24, they prayed and they said, you, O Lord, know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen. So one of the things that we see about the church, as we end here, one of the things that we see about the church is that it begins with prayer and it ends with prayer. It is utterly consumed 
with prayer. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is what empowers the church, but it is prayer that is the pipeline between you and the, and, and the Holy Spirit. So if you want the Holy Spirit working powerfully in your life, if you want to be a leader of integrity, if you want to be a leader who can recover from a fall, big or small, then you have to be a person of prayer, and that conduit of prayer connects you to the Holy Spirit, which empowers you to get over each and every obstacle you have. You can either deal with your problems in your own strength, or you can deal with them with the strength that God provides in you and through you. But that choice is yours. That choice is yours. You can be a prayerless Christian and walk around just trying to manage life. Or you can be a prayerful Christian. So I'm going to leave you with three things because I want to just challenge you before you take off here. Three things I want you to see. Uh, Number one, three characteristics of the early church, if you will. Number one, they gathered together. The church gathered together. What does that mean? They were super committed to being together at least once or twice a week. I mean, that's just the nature of the early church. And so if you're the kind of person that thinks, you know, church is optional, you know? I mean, really, my kid has a baseball game or this or that's happening, you know, um, church, whatever. I want you to understand that the nature of Christianity is that they gathered. This is part of the early church. This is part of the DNA of the church. So I want you to think seriously about your commitment to gather. And what I'm going to ask you to do is gather for the next three weeks. If you're an every other week person, we got a lot of those here. If you're an every other week person, choose for the next three weeks. Say, you know what? I'm going to press in. I'm going to dial in. These next three weeks are super important as we unfold these next steps and acts. Okay? So they gathered together. Make a commitment for the next three weeks. Number two, they sought the Lord's plan or will with one mind through prayer. In other words, the church wasn't a group of people who just prayed for their own concerns. They prayed on mission for something specifically. So we have these things called grace communities. And they're like our version of small groups, except they're like bigger groups. And they meet at people's homes. They have meals around them. And they're amazing times for you to connect with people. I mean, if you come to Grace and you go, I can't get connected, it's because you're not in a Grace community. I want to encourage you, get involved in a Grace community. We have them all over the city, okay? You, you can find one near you somewhere. All right. So understanding that, um, go back to number two real quick. They sought the Lord's plan through one mind. Okay, through prayer, meaning this, that all the people gathered together were praying for one thing. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. In your grace communities, you're getting ready to go through a book together. And in the first chapter of that book, uh, the author is going to ask you to write down on a card five people who are not saved, five people who are not Christians, okay? And I want you to do that. I want you to use this as an exercise. Go home, write down five names, and commit to pray for those five people for the next three weeks. Just make it a discipline. Wake up in the morning, grab your card. I pray for Susie, I pray for John, I pray for Peter, whatever. I pray for these people, all right? I'm going to ask for their salvation, for them to come and know Jesus. And then lastly, the third thing that they did as a church was they lived on mission, meaning they put, meaning they put words and actions together. They did something together. And so what I'm asking you to do for the next three weeks is I'm asking for you to have a conversation, a spiritual conversation about that person's next step with them in the next three weeks. So this requires you to pray and rely upon Jesus. It requires you to identify five different people that you're going to pray for. And it it requires you to um, step out and ask them where they are with God you need help on that, we can encourage you with that. We can strengthen you with that. We can give you resources for that, but whatever. I just want you to take these next three steps for the next three weeks, okay? So here's what I want you to do. I want everybody to bow your heads real quick, okay? I'm about to let you go. 
I'm going to bow your heads real quick. If you would commit to these three things for the next three weeks, I want you to raise your hand. Do it right now. Okay? All right, that's most everybody. Okay? I want you to commit to those things for the next three weeks. All right? And then we're going to hear about what God has done. I want to hear the stories about what God has done in and through your prayers because prayer is the pipeline that connects you to the Holy Spirit who empowers you to be a powerful missional presence in your community. 